Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, "The Dream Snake" by Robert E. Howard. First published in Weird Tales, February 1928. It's about five pages long and uh, well worth listening to. Eric, will you do the honors? Sure. The night was strangely still as we sat upon the wide veranda, gazing out over the broad, shadowy lawns. The silence of the hour entered our spirits, and for a long while, no one spoke. Then, far across the dim mountains that fringed the eastern skyline, a faint haze began to glow, and presently a great golden moon came up, making a ghostly radiance over the land and etching boldly the dark clumps of shadows that were trees. A light breeze came whispering out of the east, and the unmowed grass swayed before it in long, sinuous waves dimly visible in the moonlight. And from among the group upon the veranda, there came a swift gasp, a sharp intake of breath that caused us all to turn and gaze. Faming was leaning forward, clutching the arms of his chair, his face strange and pallid in the spectral light, a thin trickle of blood seeping from the lip in which he had set his teeth. Amazed, we looked at him, and suddenly he jerked about with a short, snarling laugh. There's no need of gawking at me like a flock of sheep, he said irritably and stopped short. We sat bewildered, scarcely knowing what sort of reply to make. And suddenly he burst out again. Now I guess I'd better tell you the whole thing or you'll be going off and putting me down as a lunatic. Don't interrupt me, any of you. I want to get this thing off my mind. You all know I'm not a very imaginative man, but there's a thing, purely a figment of imagination that has haunted me since babyhood. A dream! He fairly cringed back in his chair as he muttered, a dream, and God, what a dream. The first time, no, I can't remember the first time I ever dreamed it. I've been dreaming the hellish thing ever since I can remember. Now it's this way. There is a sort of bungalow set upon a hill in the midst of wide grasslands, not unlike this estate, but this scene is in Africa. And I'm living there with a sort of servant, a Hindu. Just why I'm there is never clear to my waking mind, though I am always aware of the reason in my dreams. As a man of a dream, I remember my past life, a life which in no way corresponds with my waking life. But when I am awake, my subconscious mind fails to transmit these impressions. However, I think that I am a fugitive from justice, and the Hindu is also a fugitive. How the bungalow came to be there, I can never remember, nor do I know in what part of Africa it is, though all these things are known to my dream self. But the bungalow is a small one of a very few rooms, and is situated upon the top of the hill, as I said, there are no other hills about, and the grassland stretched to the horizon in every direction, knee-high in some places, waist-high in others. Now, the dream always opens as I am coming up the hill, just as the sun is beginning to set. I am carrying a broken rifle, and I have been on a hunting trip. How the rifle was broken and the full details of the trip, I clearly remember dreaming. 
but never upon waking. It is just as if a curtain were suddenly raised and a drama began, or just as if I were suddenly transferred to another man's body and life, remembering past years of that life and not cognizant of any other existence. And that is the hellish part of it. As you know, most of us dreaming are at the back of our consciousness, aware that we are dreaming. No matter how horrible the dream may become, we know that it is a dream and thus insanity or possible death is staved off. But in this particular dream, there is no such knowledge. I tell you, it is so vivid, so complete in every detail that I wonder sometimes if that is not my real existence. And this a dream, but no, for then I should have been dead years ago. As I was saying... I come up the hill and the first thing I am cognizant of that is out of the ordinary is a sort of track leading up the hill in an irregular way. That is, the grass is mashed down as if something heavy had been dragged over it. But I pay no especial attention to it, for I am thinking with some irritation that the broken rifle I carry is my only arm and that now I must forego hunting until I can send for another. You see, I remember thoughts and impressions of the dream itself, of the occurrences of the dream. It is the memories of the dream I has of the other dream existence that I cannot remember. So, I come up the hill and enter the bungalow. The doors are open and the Hindu is not there, but the main room is in confusion. Chairs are broken, a table overturned. The Hindu's dagger is lying upon the floor, but there is no blood anywhere. Now, in my dreams, I never remember the other dreams, as sometimes one does. Always it is the first dream, the first time. I always experience the same sensations in my dreams with as vivid a force as the first time I ever dreamed. So, I am not able to understand this. The Hindu is gone, but thus I ruminate, standing in the center of the disordered room. What did away with him? Had it been a raiding party of Negroes, they would have looted the bungalow and probably burned it. Had it been a lion, the place would have been smeared with blood. Then suddenly I remember the track I saw going up the hill and a cold hand touches my spine, for instantly the whole thing is clear. The thing that came up from the grasslands and wrought havoc in the little bungalow could be naught else except a giant serpent. And as I think of the size of the spore, cold sweat beads my forehead and the broken rifle shakes in my hand. Then I rush to the door in a wild panic, my only thought to make a dash for the coast. But the sun has set and dusk is stealing across the grasslands and out there somewhere lurking in the tall grass is that grisly thing, that horror. God! The ejaculation broke from his lips with such feeling that all of us started, not realizing the tension we had reached. There was a second silence. Then he continued. So I bolt the doors and windows, light the lamp I have, and take my stand in the middle of the room. And I stand like a statue, waiting, listening. After a while, the moon comes up and her haggard light drifts through the windows. And I stand still in the center of the room. The night is very still, something like this night. The breeze occasionally whispers through the grass, and each time I start and clench my hands until the nails bite into the flesh and the blood trickles down my wrists, and I stand there and wait and listen, but it does not come that night. The sentence came suddenly and explosively, an involuntary sigh came from the rest, a relaxing of tension. I am determined, if I live the night through, to start for the coast early the next morning, taking my chance out there in the grim grasslands with it. 
But with morning, I dare not. I do not know in which direction the monster went, and I dare not risk coming upon him in the open, unarmed as I am. So, as in a maze, I remain at the bungalow, and ever my eyes turn toward the sun, lurching relentlessly down the sky toward the horizon. God, if I could but halt the sun in the sky! The man was in the clutch of some terrific power. His words fairly leaped at us. Then the sun rocks down the sky and the long gray shadows come stalking across the grasslands. Dizzy with fear, I have bolted the doors and windows and lighted the lamp long before the last faint glow of twilight fades. The light from the windows may attract the monster, but I dare not stay in the dark. And again, I take my stand in the center of the room, waiting. There was a shuddersome halt, and he continued barely above a whisper, moistening his lips. There is no knowing how long I stand there. Time has ceased to be, and each second is an eon. Each minute is an eternity stretching into endless eternities. Then, God, but what is that? He leaned forward, the moonlight etching his face with such a mask of horrified listening that each of us shivered and flung a hasty glance over our shoulders. Not the night breeze this time, he whispered. Something makes the grasses swish, swish, as if a great, long, pliant weight were being dragged through them above the bungalow. It swishes and then ceases in front of the door. Then the hinges creak, creak. The door begins to bulge inward a small bit, then some more. The man's arms were held in front of him as if braced strongly against something and his breath came in quick gasps. And I know I should lean against the door and hold it shut, but I do not. I cannot move. I stand there like a sheep waiting to be slaughtered, but the door holds. Again, that sigh expressive of pent up feeling. He drew a shaky hand across his brow. And all night I stand in the center of that room as motionless as an image except to turn slowly as the swish swish of the grass marks the fiend's course about the house. Ever I keep my eyes in the direction of that soft sinister sound. Sometimes it ceases for an instant or for several minutes and then I stand scarcely breathing for a horrible obsession has it that the serpent has in some way made entrance into the bungalow and I start and whirl this way and that frightfully fearful of making a noise though I know not why but ever with the feeling that the thing is at my back then the sounds commence again and I freeze motionless now here is the only time that my consciousness which guides my waking hours ever in any way pierces the veil of dreams i am in the dream in no way conscious that it is a dream but in a detached sort of way my other mind recognizes certain facts and passes on and passes them on to my sleeping shall i say ego that is to say my personality is for an instant truly dual and separate to an extent, as the right and left arms are separate while making up parts in the same entity. My dreaming mind has no cognizance of my higher mind. For the time being, the other mind is subordinated and the subconscious mind is in full control to such an extent that it does not even recognize the existence of the other. But the conscious mind, now sleeping, is cognizant of dim thought waves emanating from the dream mind. I know that I have not made this entirely clear, but the facts remain. 
that I know that my mind, conscious and subconscious, is near to ruin my obsession of fear as I stand there in my dream is that the serpent will raise itself and peer into the window at me. And I know in my dream that if this occurs, I shall go insane. And so vivid is the impression imparted to my conscious, now sleeping mind, that the thought waves stir the dim seas of sleep. And somehow I can feel my sanity rocking as my sanity rocks in my dream back and forth it totters and sways until the motion takes on a physical aspect and in my dream i'm swaying from side to side not always is the sensation the same but i tell you if that horror ever raises its terrible shape and leers at me if i ever see that fearful thing in my dream i shall become stark wild insane there was a restless movement among the rest god but what a prospect he muttered to be insane and forever dreaming that same dream, night and day, but there I stand and centuries go by. But at last a dim gray light begins to steal through the windows. The swishing dies away in the distance and presently a red, haggard sun climbs the eastern side. But there I stand and centuries go by, but at last a dim gray light begins to steal through the windows. The swishing dies away in the distance and presently a red haggard sun climbs the eastern sky. Then I turn about and gaze into a mirror and my hair has become perfectly white. I stagger to the door and fling it wide. There is nothing in sight but a wide track leading away down the hill through the grasslands in the opposite direction from that which I would take toward the coast. And with a shriek of maniacal laughter, I dash down the hill and race across the grasslands. I race until I drop from exhaustion. Then I lie until I can stagger up and go on. All day I keep this up with superhuman effort, spurred on by the horror behind me. And ever as I hurl myself forward on weakening legs, Ever as I lie gasping for breath, I watch the sun with a terrible eagerness. How swiftly the sun travels when a man races it for life. A losing race it is, as I know, when I watch the sun sinking toward the skyline and the hills which I had hoped to gain ere sundown seemingly as far away as ever. His voice was lowered and instinctively we leaned toward him. He was gripping the chair arms and the blood was seeping from his lip. Then the sun sets and the shadows come and I stagger on and fall and rise and reel on again and I laugh, laugh, laugh. Then I cease for the moon comes up and throws the grasslands in ghostly and silvery relief. The light is white across the land, though the moon itself is like blood. And I look back the way I have come and far back. All of us lean farther toward him, our hair a prickle. His voice came like a ghostly whisper. Far back, I see the grass waving. There is no breeze, but the tall grass parts and sways in the moonlight in a narrow, sinuous line far away, but nearing every instant. His voice died away. Somebody broke the ensuing stillness, and then... Then I awake. Never yet have I seen the foul monster, but that is the dream that haunts me and which I have awakened in my childhood screaming and my manhood in cold sweat. At irregular intervals I dream it, and each time lately, he hesitated and then went on, 
each time lately, the thing has been getting closer, closer. The waving of the grass marks his progress, and he nears me with each dream. And when he reaches me, then he stopped short, then, without a word, rose abruptly and entered the house. The rest of us sat silent for a while, then followed him, for it was late. How long I slept, I do not know, but I woke suddenly with the impression that somewhere in the house, someone had laughed long, loud, and hideously as a maniac laughs, starting up, wondering if I had been dreaming. I rushed from my room just as a truly horrible shriek echoed through the house. The place was now alive with other people who had been awakened, and all of us rushed to Faming's room whence the sounds had seemed to come. Faming lay dead upon the floor, where it seemed he had fallen in some terrific struggle. There was no mark upon him, but his face was terribly distorted as the face of a man who had been crushed by some superhuman strength, such as some gigantic snake. Beautiful. So, <laughs> it's kind of a ghost story. Um, how uh, it's uh, how did he do it? That's my question. I'm closing in on fifty, <laughs> and I'm starting to think. You know, I'm getting a hold of this writing thing. I'm I'm getting pretty good. Um, he was 22 when this was published. Well, he had. Um he had a lot of genre writing in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, you have his genre writing and lots of other styles and lots of other kinds of uh, genres over the decades that are part of your training. But, but Howard really was a devotee in many ways of the pulps. Mm-hmm. And so in part, he was writing... The same way, you know, you pick up an accent or a dialect. You know, this was the air that he breathed. Admittedly, he breathed it more imaginatively than most. Amazing. Um, as opposed to the fellow in the story who says, you know, I'm not a very imaginative right. man. Uh, but also, you know, tell us a little about his biography to remind us. I think I may be saying something true here. He was a very troubled individual. Well, yeah, that, I mean, that, he, that may have to do with how he he comes up with stuff like this. It's uh, he, he kind of lives in a troubling time. Um, you know, his own biography is it's short because he killed himself age thirty. So he's got this is this is uh, they say he he became well known for his writing uh, in 1923. Uh, sorry, um, age 23, so uh, in 1929. And after 29, basically, he's in every issue of Weird Tales for a while. Or if he misses one, it's you know only a month away before you get another one. And everybody wants his stuff. Everybody thinks it's wonderful. They're very amazed by his writing. His, um, his peers, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft in Weird Tales, um, he has a... A giant. There's a giant two-volume 
uh, collection of the letters between them going back and forth. And they are arguing extremely strongly in favor of each other's uh, or against each other's positions and coming to sort of like a like ideas they're building ideas in these books but his biography is is pretty interesting he he grew up in a very small town he was born in Piaster Texas which is a small town but they eventually moved his father was a doctor to an even smaller town called Cross Plains and this is East Texas. It's it's a famous town today if you like Robert E. Howard, but it ain't famous, you know, in Texas except for being the place where Robert E. Howard's house is. You can go there every year. There's like a little convention. Uh, I say little, but there's a lot of people who go, even this year. And it it became... It's kind of a legendary place because a lot of the things that we're seeing in his stories like this... They're really not about Africa. He has lots of stories set in Africa. He never went there. He went there in his mind, like this character has. He went there uh, in in reading other people's stories and you know reading books about those places. But yeah, he's a guy who traveled like to Mexico, right? That's the that's the farthest extent of his travel. He never went to California. He I think he was in Louisiana. Right, but he didn't travel that far, except in his mind. And he had his his parents wanted him to to uh, go to college. He went to high school. He went he went to uh, a local um, uh, bookkeeping class, right? Because he needed to earn some money. But his heart was absolutely in writing for a living, and he tried his best. He, despite you know living uh, fewer years uh, by almost ten than Robert e., uh, than H. P. Lovecraft, he has an output that's uh, approximately double. And Lovecraft wrote a lot, <laughs> right? Yeah. It, it, it's a, it's amazing. He wrote for every genre you can think of that was available. He wrote for the spicy pulps, which is basically uh, softcore pornography in in prose form. Um, but he also wrote poetry, which was not a great way to make money. He was just a passionate, passionate writer. And it may be that that talent, you know, was, was encouraged by a, a, a desire to escape that he couldn't really ever get. Uh, after his mom became gravely ill um, and he wrote to uh, weird tales asking, begging the uh, author, Farnsworth, write for money uh, on, on stories. Yeah, sorry. Uh, the editor, Farnsworth, write for the money he's owed for stories uh, in the past and stories forthcoming. Um, just, you know, desperate for cash, trying to make a living and, you know, help pay for his mom's costs. He, he, he finds out that she's going to die and he goes out to his car. And he pulls out a gun, and he shoots himself. His his legacy is massive, but we don't know, we don't really know, you know, the psychology of all of it because when he's writing letters, he doesn't talk about himself and you know how sad he is. He mentions that he has these gigantic melancholies. We know that he's passionate about a lot of things. 
subplot go, getting into his head there and you know his relationship with his his father and his mother we don't really understand that i don't anyways um but what i do know is that his psychology is all over the page it's all over the page and and we can really feel like these this is a completely made up story right we don't know where it's set other than it's not africa i would assume it's somewhere like texas right uh there's a veranda there's a bungalow um there's the we uh the audience and it's not one guy it's more than one person right and one person speak uh, speaks in the story who is not the narrator uh, th- that is the outer narrator and who is not the inner narrator but we don't know who that person is or what their relationship is but what we do know is that the passion of the storytelling in here it feels real in a way that is amazing considering it's it's an artificial product right there's lots of tropes in here like the hair turning white right <laughs> in fear i mean this is sort of standard right <laughs> He went out into the woods, he saw something, and when he came back, his hair was white shock upon his head. Yeah. Poe's descent into the maelstrom. Indeed, indeed. And uh, so he's he's created something that is wholly artificial. Uh, Robert E. Howard probably had vivid dreams, but this isn't like a dream that he had that he wrote down. Because you can see how it's constructed so very carefully. I'd like to pick up on on two of the things that you're saying here, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Um, one, the passion for writing. While this is genre writing, um, I, I tried to make clear in my voice the use of Caesarus mm. in the description of the snake going up the hill, the swish swish, and so on. The use, of, the poetic use of the language is really very well controlled here. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there someone paying enormous attention to his language. And because of that, I think we can be very alert to the possible significance of particular word choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I've, I, I, had, I don't anymore, but in my youth, I had uh, recurring dreams. Mm-hmm. I can remember now what they were, in fact, but I don't have them anymore. Um, this this story talks about recurring dreams, mm-hmm. but the recurring dream keeps modifying bit by bit by bit. And he, we're told it begins in babyhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, chill, people don't have dreams that they remember from babyhood. Nope. In fact, the, the faming is... Uh, inferring that it's from babyhood because he can't remember a time when he didn't have that dream. Mm-hmm. And so what what Howard is giving us is, I think, a sense that, indeed, for an imaginative person, not the unimaginative man Faming claims himself to be, so, so much so that he's well known for it, um, for the imaginative person, the imaginative life is congenital. It is who you are. Mm -hmm. It's not just something that you train up. And what we see in this story is, as you say, psychology, probably Howard's, all over the page. Mm -hmm. What is it that he sees? He sees a sensuous power that would 
overtake him. He would try to get, I mean, a Freudian would go crazy, you know, he just yep. tries to get back into the, back into the womb, but this huge penis kind of thing, you know, mm -hmm. we, we don't have to, we don't have to assume that that's the case. In fact, in Africa, the snake is a symbol of knowledge, and it may well be that the knowledge of what's really out there is crucial. The grasslands are, def are described as sometimes ankle deep, sometimes waist deep. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's moving up toward his genitals his rifle think about another phallic symbol is broken and mm -hmm. he knows not where right the other races and this is a racist story as yep. is so much of howard's work the negro and the hindu you know are unaccountably not there but they represent danger mm -hmm. and he doesn't know where any of this comes from the description of what it means to have a dual consciousness is so acute, mm -hmm. you know, I know for sure that in the dream I knew why I was doing this, mm -hmm. but I don't now know why in the dream I thought I was doing this. He is so precise and, and believable in his description of what it means to live in the dream world, what it means to have dreams, that in one way one can suggest that this story is a story about dreams. So we get to the end, faming, that is a present participle from the verb you could construct from the noun fame, mm -hmm. right? Somebody striving for fame, faming lay dead upon the floor where it seemed he had fallen in some terrific struggle. We know what his struggle is. He's been struggling with his dream, with mm -hmm. his existence as a dreamer. There was no mark upon him. So how did the narrator know that there was a terrific struggle? Perhaps by the uh, the, the disarray of the, the bedclothes, mm -hmm. perhaps by the, the deployment of the faming's limbs. There was no mark upon him, but his face was terribly distorted. Well, you know... I can distort my face without mm -hmm. anybody hitting it, right? Mm -hmm. As the face of a man who had been crushed by some superhuman force, such as some gigantic snake. And so now we see, the. I mean, right today as it happens, my friend, I'm having a little trouble with my, the intercostal muscles on the back of my right rib cage. I'm feeling something akin to a backache. Mm -hmm. You can make yourself hurt and twist and spasm whether you want to or not. A third of Americans have lower back pain doing just that. <laughs> right? So what do we have here? It's a story of someone whose own imagination kills him because he can't figure out how to harness this mm. imagination and find a way to live in the world. So what I'm trying to pick up here from what you said, Jesse, is we can look at this as the product of a man who is passionate about his writing, but as you say about the urgency of finding money and the need to care for his mother, he, in fact, cannot make life work through this passion of his, and so he sees his imagination is always there but always something that would kill him. And when he finds he no longer needs the money to be able to maintain his mother's life, and he sees that his imaginative life is not giving him what he wants, he goes out and kills himself. Mm -hmm. this, this story is a premonition of Howard's own demise. I agree. 
it's a, it's amazing. I I I spent so much time just like looking at at word choices as you point out. He's so good. The first three paragraphs there's so many so much doubling you you called attention to the dual consciousness which it, it, it's all over the page right there is uh a narrator and then there's the outer narrator there's uh a comment and then there's the comment upon that comment there's the reaction of the audience always always in the first three paragraphs it goes like this the night was strangely still that opening line seems very simple but still is one of those contronyms it means continuous and also unmoving, right? <laughs> Beautiful. As we sat upon the wide veranda gazing out over the broad shadowy lawns, the silence of the hour entered our spirits, and for a long while no one spoke. There's silence, and then no one speaks. Even though there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.